podcast from Cedar Valley Unitarian Universalists in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and I'm your host, Kat Bean Hansen. Welcome. We're glad you're here. This week's message was originally given on September 20th, 2020. Our member, Judith Harrington, talks about standing up to be counted. My appreciation to the Religious Services Committee for inviting me to visit with you this morning. I prepared the first portion of today's message as part of a longer presentation originally intended to be delivered in person at the Cedar Falls Historical Society um, next month during its year-long recognition of Iowa's 19th Amendment Centennial Commemoration Project with the slogan, Hard One, Not Done. Instead, due to the pandemic, the taped full presentation will be available from the Historical Society websites, YouTube, and Facebook links starting October 10. So, in my message to you this morning, I'm first sharing a glimpse into some personal experiences that guided me in learning how to stand up and be counted, along with the broader topic of us all standing up to be counted as the national election nears. Do you ever wonder what someone you've come to know as an adult was like in childhood? Were they always this cranky or shy or in your face pushy? What we have been enduring since last March, the changes thrust upon us with no opportunity to prepare, all have led me to reflect on my own upbringing and how I've changed. I was born and raised in North New Jersey, a timid, yes, me timid, child who learned very early that I better follow the rules, whether laid down by my parents, teachers, or anyone else. I knew better than to make waves because the consequences of behaving in a way my parents, particularly my father, disapproved of resulted in painful consequences. So, no backtalk, no sass, no rebellion. My first stray away from timidity was as I neared high school graduation. There were two cello players in our orchestra. The other one was an all-stater. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then there was me, a weak player at best, who had been switched from piano to cello only the year before. When I learned that orchestra seniors weren't going to be permitted to march in the commencement processional with our other classmates because the orchestra would be playing, I surprised myself by thinking, that's not fair. I asked the orchestra teacher for reconsideration and was rebuked. His reply, what if the whole orchestra was composed of seniors and they all wanted to march? My retort. There were fewer than 10 seniors in orchestra, and I was the only one who wanted to march, so what was the problem? He then pointed out that he'd always thought I was a nice girl, but maybe he'd been wrong. Uh Uh-oh. 
I went to my advisor who said I better back off. Teachers were beginning to talk about me. And worst of all, my mother went to the principal to assure him I was just having a senior emotional meltdown. And please, please don't take away Judy's college scholarships. A compromise was reached, whereby we orchestra seniors who cared about it proceeded into the hall, followed by the, the following the dignitaries and valedictorians, but before the rest of our classmates. I can still see the orchestra teacher's face at rehearsal as he announced the rule change, then turned to me and said, I hope you're happy. That was the first time I stood up to be counted. It was bewildering and definitely frightening to me as my parents were not at all pleased that I had rocked the system. A few more such incidents occurred during my collegiate years, but I want to bring you along now to my first year at UNI. I've made every effort to verify dates and incidents, should there be any factual errors, responsibility is mine, of course. I came to UNI actually when it was still State College of Iowa in fall 1965, thrilled and humbled to be a college teacher, hired as an assistant professor with probationary status, meaning that if all went well, I would be tenured in three years. Yes, in those days, tenure took only three years. As it turned out, shortly before my first winter break, I met and began dating Gordon Harrington, a brilliant psychology professor who will be remembered by a number of you as he was a member of our congregation until his death nearly five years ago. We were married during spring break 1966, and upon my return to the office the following Monday, I found a letter from then President Mocker stating that since I'd married a tenured professor, I was no longer eligible for tenure. Further, my rank had been reduced to instructor meaning I also no longer was eligible for advancement in rank. What? I went to whatever the appropriate faculty committee was at the time to plead my case and was turned away. Still determined, at the end of the first spring semester, I met with President Mocker about my concerns. You know how thousands of experiences fade away, but some remain crystal clear for decades? So it is with my memory of that meeting over 54 years ago. President Mocker was courteous and kind, but grief, he'd even given me away at my wedding. He responded by first noting that at one time, any woman would be ineligible for or lose her rank and tenure status when marrying a male faculty member, even if his rank or tenure status were less advanced than hers. President Mocker noted that most of those women were assigned at the college's K through 12 Price Laboratory School, although some were on the main campus, and all had taught successfully for many years without tenure or advanced rank. He then patiently explained, I should appreciate how the situation now, that is in 1966, was far better for women faculty than ever before because the system had become equitable in his mind, meaning the partner with lower rank and tenure status lost any opportunity for advancement, even if male. 
And I was supposed to be pacified by that, right? Wrong. I was becoming agitated. President Mocker then proposed a hypothetical case to me where there were three directors of the campus library, two of them being married to each other. Decisions coming from the library's administration could never be proven to be the result of what he called pillow talk. But then he added, maybe they were. By then I was truly perturbed. I don't know how I had the courage for what I next said. It was the kind of speech one might give in the shower following an experience thinking, why didn't I say that at the time? But I did. I remember replying, first of all, if all these women are doing so well, why aren't they tenured and at advanced rank? And about my situation, Gordon and I are in different departments. We're in different buildings. He's on the third floor of his, I'm in the basement of mine. We rarely even see each other on campus. So I insist we would never be plotting an academic coup. I then hit the president's large desk with my fist, which probably startled me as much as it did him. And then came my closing sentence. President Mocker, what I hear you saying is that you would condone an affair, but condemn a marriage. President Mocker sat back, stared at me and concluded, Judith, I will take this under advisement. I left that meeting knowing I had stood up to be counted, but had no idea at the time that it wasn't only for myself. The following fall, not only had my rank and probationary tenure status been restored, at a dinner of women faculty, a Price Lab School teacher asked if anyone else had the same experience as her and might know why her instructor's title had suddenly been shifted to assistant professor with tenure. Other women said the same thing had happened to them. Wow, President Mocker had not only restored my former rank status, along with being eligible to work toward tenure, he corrected the situation for all those women he'd mentioned to me. Yet, seeds of discontent were wafting my way from my discipline head, who would become my department head a few years later. Learning of the reinstatement of my status, he called me into his office and said, you just speak right out if you don't get what you want, don't you? Uh-oh again. What had been a cordial relationship between us for most of my first year at SCI became stormy for the rest of our decades together. I had begun to pay a price for standing up to be counted, although it didn't stop me from doing so a number of additional times during the rest of my career at UNI. Most significantly, when I spearheaded a class action lawsuit related to the blatant differential in salaries between male and female faculty. The suit, including all the years of data gathering, extended from 1970 to 1977 and came to be known as Harrington et al. on behalf of themselves and all others similarly situated as plaintiffs against the state of Iowa the University of Northern Iowa and the State Board of Regents as defendants. 
The details of those seven years are too complex to relate today, but will be included in the Historical Society taped presentation if you're interested. Suffice it to say, at a department meeting not long after the conclusion of the suit, my department had turned to my longtime female colleague and me saying, you both should be very happy. Oh no, the voice of my high school orchestra teacher was being channeled through my department head's mouth all those years later. Hard for me to swallow. My thanks to Pastor Emma for encouraging me to visit with you as well this morning about standing up to be counted in the upcoming election. I want to note how apt the Iowa theme, hard one, not done, is in honoring passage of the 19th Amendment. Indeed, the victory didn't relieve the suppression of voting opportunities for many yet to this day. Certain women, and regardless of gender, those of color, just as a few examples. The challenge is so enormous, what can any one of us do? Well, first, certainly, we must be responsible for ourselves. So I want to focus on how each of us must stand up to be counted in our nation's upcoming general election on November 3rd, 44 days from now. Lots of time left, right? No. All right. Don't tune me out like you tune out all those political ads because you've already heard more than enough about fears surrounding the likely huge mushrooming of absentee ballots and uncertainty that mail ballots even will be received or counted. Stay with me just for a few more minutes. By now, every registered voter in the state should have received an absentee ballot request form sent early this month by Iowa Secretary of State. Those in certain larger counties, including Blackhawk, received the request form even sooner, in early August, to give those election offices a head start in preparing the ballots for mailing. Both state and county mailings included a return addressed envelope for your convenience. Some of you also may have received forms from special interest groups. And of course, you do know that should you send back more than one request, you will receive only one ballot. Even the U.S. Post Office has mailed a large postcard to all customers with dates and links. You don't need to memorize the few important deadlines I'm about to mention. All of them and far more will be found in our CVUU September and October newsletters, and Kat graciously is including timely deadlines in her weekly updates. The takeaway here is don't waste time. If you've already filled out a request form and mailed it to the election office at the courthouse, you may be wondering why you haven't received the ballot yet. The reason, ballots can't start being mailed to those requesting them until October 5th. Further, the last date the election office can accept ballot requests by mail or hand delivered is October 24th. But here comes the takeaway second time. I urge you not to wait that long unless you really do want to gamble and risk whether your votes will be counted. The post office mailing I mentioned earlier recommends that your ballot be mailed back at least seven days before election day. That would be October 27th. 
but I urge you not to wait that long. You see, to be counted in Iowa, mailed absentee ballots must be postmarked, meaning date stamped, no later than November 2nd, and received by the election office no later than noon, November 9th. And by now, you've all heard over and over again that you will have no guarantee the ballot's envelope will be date stamped by the post office. You have a number of options for returning your completed ballot. Regular mailing sites, the county course, courthouse elections office, or a special white drop box that's going to be installed near the courthouse uh, public entrance facing Lafayette Street. The box will be locked and bolted to concrete and in view of a security camera. My closing point, all in caps and in bold, November 3rd is the only date you need to remember if you're going to vote in person. But if you intend to vote absentee and or if you need to register or change your registration name or address, November 3rd will be far too late. So take away final time, don't delay. Once again, for your handy reference, all the dates and deadlines along with useful links are in this month's CVUU newsletter article and another in the October newsletter, which will be distributed to us by the 28th of this month, as well as notes in our email weekly updates. I end my message this morning by affirming, let us all stand up to be counted. Thank you. This has been the Sunday Messages podcast from Cedar Valley Unitarian Universalists. The music is by Nathan Moore. If you want to learn more about the CVUU, visit our website at www.cedarvalleyuu.org. And you can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at Cedar Valley UU. We welcome visitors to attend our online services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Central Time. If you'd like to learn more about joining us for a service, send us an email at cvuupodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.